episode 77 of Closer Mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellet. This week's episode is one that I'm excited to help tell. Jenny Sitchell comes to this podcast by way of Bryn Mawr and Team USA's rowing teams. But she didn't find crew until she got to the greater Philadelphia area as a freshman in college. She walked onto the team at Bryn Mawr and joined a group of young women who, save a handful, were at the same starting point. A couple of the women that I was rowing with um, had some experience from high school, um, but it was a rarity to have high school experience or have prior experience in rowing. And Bryn Mawr definitely was not known for their athletics. My freshman year, I was a little upstart. Um, and I started out as a rower um, in the boat and actually ended up making the varsity crew my novice year. Um, in the bow seat, which is the person that like, when you see a boat going down the course, it's the person that is like sitting backwards, but in the front of the crew. So like closest to the finish line, but they're sitting backwards because all rowers sit backwards. Um, and so then my sophomore year, I moved from that seat up to, I have to remember, oh my gosh, it was so long ago. <laughs> God, I just aged myself. Um, so... <laughs> From that seat, I moved up to stroke seat, actually, seven seat and stroke seat, and which is closer to the coxswain. And a stroke seat is the one sort of leading, setting the rhythm for the boat. Um, and so I actually stroked head of the Charles Regatta, which is a major race in Boston, my sophomore year of college. And then spring of my sophomore year, ended up um, injuring myself while I was rowing. And my little upstart nature was like, oh, I just had a major shooting pain down my leg and I can't put pressure on it. I'm going to row the rest of the week. Um, and so I like probably damaged my back even more at that point. Um, but basically that's what took me out of competitive rowing. Um, but I wanted to stay in the sport and I just happened to be bossy and short. Um, so I was like, well, I might as well do the thing that my body type was meant to do in some regards. Um, let me go try coxing. In competitive rowing, the coxswain is the individual who works with the coach as the team's leader in the water. That person sits looking forward as the rest of the rowers are positioned the opposite way. The coxswain directs and synchronizes the other's oar movements, keeping time, stroke speed and rhythm, and physical direction in mind during races. After herniating a disc that sophomore season, Sitchell was urged to use her extroverted nature and leadership skills to assume that new role in the boats. The first job in when you first learn how to cox is you need to be able to steer a straight line, um, which sounds really easy, but is really, really hard when you have a boat with different oars going in at different times, different pressures being applied at different times. Um, it can be really challenging to steer a straight line. Um, and so, yeah, we actually have, um, in an eight person boat, you have little lines on either side, um, of where you're sitting and you, they're connected to a rudder under the boat. And then in a four person boat, you can either have those lines or you can have a lever, um, if you're in a bow loaded cocks boat. By the end of that spring, it just wasn't getting much better. Um, and like trying to row on the rowing machines just wasn't working that well. Um, and so uh, summer that year, I ended up coaching and uh, coxing a little bit. And that's where I really started kind of learning the ropes of coxing. Um, I did a little bit of coxing that spring, but not a ton. Um, and then summer is when I really got into it uh, that year. 
Sigil at 5'3", 110 pounds, fit the body mold of a perfect coxswain. I think with coxing, I mean, generally you're looking for a shorter individual that weighs max 120 pounds or minimum 120 pounds. Maximum, there's not really a max, but you want to weigh as close to that 120 pound mark as you can. Um, and so that was sort of physically, I was that body type. Um, and then uh, kind of personality wise, um, in high school, I was actually very much put into a leadership role because I was like queen of marching band, um, kind of thing. Queen of the band geeks is what they called me. Um, I was drum major in high school and uh, pretty much led like a hundred member band throughout my senior year. And so that translated that lead, those leadership skills that I learned in that translated really well into coxing. Um, because as a coxswain, you almost have to walk the fine line of being an athlete, but also being a coach. And it's like, you're being basically pulled down the race course by your rowers. And um, while they're going through immense amounts of stress and pain and putting it all out there and you're screaming at them to go. And like, if you don't contribute to that and if you don't walk that fine line appropriately, some rowers hate coxswains. And in my opinion, that's kind of because they haven't had um, great coxswains or they the coxswains themselves for the boats haven't been coached appropriately. I think it takes a mutual respect. I think that an easy way to do it when you are first getting started in coxing is when the rowers do any lifting workouts or indoor workouts, you work out with them. Um, you don't just sit on the sideline um, unless the coach calls you over, tells you to do something, of course, but you kind of earn that respect with them because they're like, oh, okay. Um, but then also treating them like athletes, like and treating yourself like an athlete. You're not above any rower in the boat as a coxswain. You all have a job to do. And by ensuring that you do that job, um, like I feel like a lot of coxswains tend to be like, I'm in charge now, um, but you're not really in a way. And so I think by realizing that and communicating in that manner versus like, oh yeah, I'm second in command under the coach. Um, it's going to help the rowers gain a respect for you. And then also listening to the rowers. I think it's like any management system. When you have an upper level manager, you have to listen to your lower level employees. Or if you have uh, someone managing peers, you have to listen to your peers for feedback and you have to be open to that. Not necessarily walking all over you, like you expect them to put out and they expect you to put out, but you also have to have that expectation of them. So it's like, a give and take, and once you figure out that balance, that's how you walk the fine line. Sitchell says that mutual respect is gained through verbal commands as well as nonverbal cues. Once a competition starts, short, stern commands are all the speed of the race allows. The best advice that I ever got when I first started coxing was talk 80% less. Um, because what you say, every word that you say in the boat, if you talk too much, and you're constantly communicating with them, it's like anything, it's like white noise to them. But if you give them that time to sort of process what you just said and then say, yes, you got it, good, it's working, and then shut up again, or, and give them time to process what you just said. That works so much better than just sort of word vomit. Um, and it really helps sort of dial in 
what you're saying too, because then that also gives you time to think about what your next command is going to be. Over the course of a race, Sitchell says that the urgency of her commands differs. Some issues need immediately rectifying, while others fit better in a different section of the race plan. Generally speaking, you'll say like in two, which means in two strokes, do this command. Um, if you are in a race, um, it really depends. Sometimes it can be like, I don't know, give me five strokes on this one. And then there you have to execute that command right then and there. Um, and usually it's like, give me five strokes to get your catches in. We'll say something like that on this one. Um, because it's needed urgently to get ahead of another boat or to do something else. If it's not needed quite so urgently, you can say in two to really prepare your boat and get them together. But once you've honed that communication, generally speaking, it's within like five seconds. We break the race up into like four quadrants. So four or 500 meter segments for 2000 meter. Or when I was racing in Rio, it was only a thousand meters. Now it's 2000, but, um, so you break it up into quadrants. The first quadrant is all about just sort of getting your crew up and moving, getting them into a set steady rhythm. Second, second quadrant is more about like seeing where the field is at, that sort of thing. And so your calls are a little more like stern, but not necessarily like screaming at a crew because you don't want them to go full out. And even if they're neck and neck with somebody, it's more about keeping them relaxed when they're neck and neck with somebody in the second and third. 500s um, and it's more about giving them the confidence to know that they can push through that other boat um, and then in the fourth 500 we do what's called a sprint in the last like 250 300 meters um, and that's where you sort of start ramping up your energy because by that point the rowers are exhausted not hearing anything because they're like past the point of the pain cave and so you say really short quick things if really sternly, really forcefully get them going. I mean, when we were in Rio outside of a malfunction with the equipment and um, on the last race, but like in first couple races, like the crowd was cheering so loudly, you can't hear the coxswain. Um, and so it's like, you have to be loud. You have to be short and sharp with what you're saying at that point. If you're neck and neck, there's no time for long sentences. You just got to get them in sync ASAP, get them relaxed up the slide if you can, even at that point. Um, and so it like, it really depends on where you are in the race. That kind of direct coaching is what landed Sitchell junior year as the coxswain for Vesper Boat Club, a competitive rowing club out of Philadelphia's historic Boathouse Row. I ended up coxing at Vesper Boat Club um, for the pre-elite team there. So I would go to practice in the morning, work all day, go to practice in the afternoon. Um, but like I said, I like to give myself as much opportunity as possible and get as good as I can. So I ended up coxing for the master's team, which is age like 21 and older in the morning, early morning, like 5 a.m., going to pre-elite practice at 7 a.m., working all day and then pre-elite in the evening. Um, and so with the master's team, I actually went to master's nationals championships um, and I was gonna cox an eight. And the coach told me, hey, your stroke seat's out, new stroke seat's in, listen to whatever she says. And I was like, okay, whatever. Because uh, I'm a little upstart still, like as a junior in college, um, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and so I ended up um, warming up with this person telling me, I'm like, okay, can you just stop talking? Like, I know what I'm doing, thank you. 
I didn't say that to her, but I was like, that was my mentality, <laughs> which is very pompous and not normally me, but I'm also like confident when I'm in the boat. So, um, and then we go down the race course and she's like, oh, hey, that was great. Can I get your name and number? And I was like, sure. Or like, I'll cox for Vesper again. That's a great opportunity. Um, and two weeks later, I got an email from her being like, I'm the adaptive national team coach and I'd like to invite you to some development camps. Um, and so that's how I got my start in para rowing. Para rowing, adaptive crew for athletes with physical impairments, doesn't require its coxswains to classify, considering them more as coaches than athletes. And Sitchell jumped right in with the national team in 2010. When I first started in Paralympic athletic or Paralympic rowing, um, it was known as LTA, TA, and AS, which stands for leg, trunk, and arms, was one classification, meaning you could use your full body. Trunk and arms was the second classification, which means that you're in a fixed seat, your legs are strapped down, and you can swing with your body and use your arms, but you can't use your legs. And then arms and shoulders, which means you're strapped in at like your waist, kind of thing, like right under your bus line. Um, and you can really only use your arms and shoulders to row. But um, it changed to match up with other Paralympic sports a little more. So now it's known as PR1, 2, and 3. So PR3 is like what used to be LTA, what used to be leg trunk arms, full body rowing. This could be like a club foot. It could be a visual impairment. It could be a, a, like we've had herbs palsy in the boat we've had uh, one limb smaller than the other less flexion whatever something to do like that but basically these athletes have to go through a classification and um, and when they're classified there's a physical therapist and a classifier there and they take them through kind of rigmarole um and based on the amount of use they have of their limbs they are classified into whatever category. So PR2 would be the trunk and arms and PR1 would be the arms and shoulders. Coxing visually and physically impaired athletes adds a layer of complexity to the directing that coxswains like Sitchell are required to do. I've adjusted kind of my thoughts over the years on that. I don't think it's much different than coxing an able-bodied athlete at this point. I just think that by coxing, para-athletes, I've gotten a lot more specific with what I say and a lot better at verbalizing what I want to happen. Um, and so that's the same thing with coaching too. It's, it's, you don't like, maybe the fixed seat athletes you coach slightly differently, but um, with coxing at least, it's very much, I mean, there are a couple things that like you adjust, but it's not necessarily adjusting any way that you cox um, or anything like that. A lot of these athletes that were in my boat rode in their college programs. And so it's like, they're not used to having any accommodations. They're not used to anyone saying anything different to them. And so you don't, um, you just get a lot more specific because like when I was in Rio and before, there was a limitation in the boat that any blind athlete or visually impaired athlete had to wear goggles, blackout goggles. Um, and so as a coxswain, I had to tell them where they were on the course, where the other boats were on the course, that sort of thing, which is always good for rowers to know. But I got really good at doing that. And then after that year, the goggles got pulled away. So they no longer had to wear goggles. 
Um, and I just kept coxing the same way because it really just honed my skills as a coxswain versus actually changing the way I coxed. The athletes that had a visual impairment um, would tell me, oh yeah, that was great coxing. Like I knew everything that was going on. I could make a picture in my mind of where we were, everything like that. Um, but if they say, I kind of lost it at this point, um, or yeah, I had no clue where that finish line was. I was just going. That's kind of a sign that like, okay, I didn't do a good enough job. <laughs> I got to get more specific with what I'm saying and when I'm saying it. Um, and they'll also tell you like, oh yeah, like the 250 meter in mark, I didn't realize we were, or 500 meter in, I thought we were at the thousand. And you could be like, okay, well, I got to get better at calling that then. Um, that sort of thing. Adaptive rowing helped Sitchell find herself in 2014, winning a legs, trunk, and arms mixed four plus silver medal at the World Rowing Championships in Amsterdam. This was her first international taste of success. What came next was five straight years of silver medals and a trip to the 2016 Rio Paralympic Games. One of the main ways that you unite people in the boat is actually outside of the boat too. Um, I think that a crew that's going to be really good generally has good rapport with each other. Um, I know in my crew for Rio, we were best friends. Like the entire boat loved each other. And in my crews before that and after that, like the boat loved each other. Um, and it showed. We did really well. Um, I remember before my world championship race in 2015, we ended up losing by 0.26 seconds, which also sucks. But um, when we were at the starting line and I remember going to my crew like, you guys are awesome. Love you guys. Let's go. Um, and then it was awesome. Like it was a great race and it was just that sort of camaraderie that really helped us sync up in the boat too. And, and made it easier for us to make changes, expect what I was going to say in the boat, um, expect what the crew members would do in response to what I was saying, that sort of thing. Ahead of international competition. Sitchell always goes through an inner monologue and an in-depth visualization exercise to help avoid any potential distractions. Even still, at the mercy of the water, Sitchell knows firsthand the ways that even the imagination can't prepare you. When I first started coxing internationally, a lot of that monologue was by myself um, because it's nerve-wracking. Um, and I don't want those nerves to be shown to the crew at all. Um, and also I need to get into my zone. Um, so uh, usually what would be like optimal for me as a coxhead would be to show up maybe 10, 15 minutes before the crew gets there, get into my zone first. And that usually involves like some visualization of what might take place during the race, something like that. And then when the crew gets there, um, it, that's when you sort of come out of your zone and go into boat zone. And that's like optimal for me. Does that ever happen? Not usually. <laughs> like that would, I would love that, but it's never really that like great. But a lot of times what does happen is the coach will ask you as a coxswain to stay behind and help break the boat or help make sure everything, all of the nuts and bolts are tight on the boat. Um, and then the crew goes up and does their like physical warm up and like initial warm-up before you get in the boat to do your race warm-up. Um, and so then once everything's tight, that'll be like my time to like 
kind of get into my zone and then I can go over to the crew once that's all done. With each visualization that you do, I make it slightly different than the one before so that I can account for most of the situations that might happen or might unfold during a race. Um, and so like, I mean, even for our final Rio final, I visualized the exact race that happened in one of my things. And I remember in the middle of the final, I was like, oh my God, this is what I visualized. Let's go. Except the stern pair couldn't hear me in the boat um, for the final. And so half the boat couldn't hear me, half the boat could hear me a little bit, but I couldn't hear the stern pair speaker because they were furthest away from me. Um, and so uh, I didn't know that their speaker wasn't working. Otherwise I would have screamed. Um, so that was basically almost worse in our boat than not having a coxswain. Um, and I remember being in the race and I was like, I had visualized this. I knew exactly what I was going to call. I called it and nothing happened. Um, and so that was like, what's going on? Um, so I kept calling out at the end of the race, the strokes, it was like, I couldn't hear you the entire race. And I was just like, what? But it just shows, goes to how much our boat loved each other and how in sync we were with each other that we were still able to come in second by only two seconds. Um, and so it's like that sort of thing. It's like all of the practice, we always practice like we're gonna race. You don't change anything for the race. And, and so because of that, we were able to still get second place, but yeah, it's like, you can only visualize so much. <laughs> Our first silver was in 2014 in Amsterdam. Um, and then 2015 was the 0.26 second race. 2016 was the two second microphone go off race. <laughs> um, and then 2017 was in Florida and, and we came in silver again there. Um, and then 2018 was in Bulgaria um, and we got silver again there and they've gotten silver ever since. Um, so my motto is actually, I'm a viewer of the gold lining because I'm sick and tired of silver. Getting discouraged was a natural reaction, but competition after competition, Sitchell focused on moving forward. Every race was a new opportunity to improve for her boat and herself. It's just coming back from that silver and saying, what can I do to get better? What can I do to make that gap lessen? What can I do to get stronger um, and make the boat move faster? And that was my mentality every year. It wasn't like, oh God, we're, I don't want another silver. It was like, how can I make this boat the fastest boat that it can be? And what can I do better from previous years to do that? Part of what moved her along was a college age diagnosis with severe obsessive compulsive disorder. She strived to succeed in every aspect of her life and it continued to bleed its perfectionistic tendencies into her coxing mindset. So I didn't officially get diagnosed with OCD until I was a sophomore in college. Um, and I didn't realize it could be a mental health disability until I was 27 years old and covered by the ADA. Um, and when I was first starting to cox for the national team, um, it was extremely stressful. I was going through therapy, um, learning how to cope, learning how to work through my OCD and work with it rather than having it kind of lead my life. Um, and this was all while college was happening, <laughs> which was a hot mess and probably the reason why I didn't like college that much. Um, <laughs> but in the second year when I came back, um, I disclosed to my coach that I had OCD. 
Um, and part of my OCD is like, if you do this, then something bad will happen in your life or you won't get this. Um, and that year I ended up not making the team. Um, and I was devastated um, and thought that it was because I had disclosed my OCD to my coach, which I still don't know if that was part of it, but I'd like to hope not. Um, and then the following year, um, I came back again to the same coach and ended up getting lied to, um, by the coach as to why I didn't make the boat. Um, and after I was told I didn't make the boat, um, without even realizing it, I started speeding out of the parking lot, um, and stopped myself when I got probably about three quarters of the way through the parking lot, realized what was going on uh, and told myself, just get back to the host family house. Um, and I don't know if that was OCD, if that was depression, what that was, if that was just like, holy crap, my world is gone. Um, but my dad actually had to fly down to Virginia that evening from New Jersey to come pick me up and drive me home because I didn't think I could drive myself home without potentially going off the road. And it wasn't until 2020 um, that I sat down with my former coach and told her about my OCD. Um, and it took me seven, eight years to disclose it to her because I knew at that point, nothing bad could happen. <laughs> the worst had already happened. Like, it's like, <laughs> um, but it's interesting because I don't think any athlete should have to go through that. Um, I don't think any athlete should have to worry about disclosing their mental health situation and worry that there might be repercussions for disclosing it to a coach because I think that a coach can absolutely help you and should be able to help you find the right resources, support you so that you can perform to your best. Um, and the best coaches are able to do that versus judging you or um, worrying that you're lesser or weaker than another athlete just because you have mental health issue. I really think like it needs to be athletes talking, feeling okay to talk about it and coaches and teammates giving athletes a space to talk about it. Um, because in reality, it's a sport. Um, and for the most part, the sports that we do don't define our lives solely. Um, and that's another thing that I've had to learn too, is like, there are other aspects to my life that define it, not just Paralympic rowing. Sigil found that when she left competitive coxing after the Rio Games, the transition into coaching was an easy one. During the 2020 Paralympics in Tokyo, Sigil helped coach a team to finish 10th in the PR1 single skulls category. Along with coaching rowing teams, Sigil also works for the National Council on Independent Living, advocating for people with disabilities. I currently work for the National Council on Independent Living, um, and I am loving being a part of the independent living movement. Um, and so I think that would be like my main shout out right now, because it's one of those things where the independent living movement, um, a nickel as we call it, um, really focuses on ensuring that people with disabilities have the best opportunities to live on their own and not be institutionalized, not go into sheltered workshops, and not go into nursing homes, and transition out of nursing homes, that sort of thing. 
Um, and so I'm really passionate about that, um, especially identifying with the disability community. Um, and like knowing that if I lived 50 years ago, 70 years ago, my life would not be nearly the same as what it is now. I'd probably be in an institution. You can find more information about the work that Jenny does at the link in the show notes. Also down there is the link to today's sponsor, BetterHelp. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. If you've ever listened to a Closer Mentality episode and thought, I feel exactly the same way, I'm working with BetterHelp to bring online therapy to your phone and computer. BetterHelp offers video, phone, and live chat options, and you can speak to a licensed therapist in less than 48 hours. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp has more than 20,000 licensed therapists around the country, and you have access to them at any time. You can get thoughtful messages from your therapist, and if you aren't happy, it's free to change providers. If you're worried about the cost of traditional talk therapy, BetterHelp also plans for that. They offer financial aid if funding is the only thing standing between you and getting the help that you need. Join the over 2 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. I have a special offer for all Closer Mentality listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com forward slash Closer Mentality. That's betterhelp.com forward slash Closer Mentality. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. The link is also in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening to Jenny's story and episode 77 of Closer Mentality. As always, I'm your host, Julia Mellett. See you next week. Bye.